As a teenager, I loved birthdays. You know, the idea of being spoilt for a day, getting presents, being fussed over. Oh, it's wonderful. As you get older, maybe the wonder and the spectacular kind of dissolves a bit. But then again, as a parent, uh, with, with kids, celebrating birthdays makes sense, doesn't it? It's, it's a wonderful thing to do. It's, it's appropriate. It, celebrating any milestone really makes sense, doesn't it? 60 years of marriage. There are many things in life, aren't there, that are worth celebrating. Anzac Day. We even celebrate men and women who, who have given up their lives, who have fallen for our sake. We don't know them, do we? We've never met pretty much all of them. We don't have our deep, uh, intimate relationship with them, but yet we celebrate their lives, don't we? It's still worth celebrating. Well, if that's the case, then how much more does it make sense for, for us as Christians to celebrate Jesus? We've never met him face to face, have we? We've never embraced him or shook, shook him, shake, shake his hand, whatever, forgive my English. Yet, he came into this world, he gave up his, his place with God, and he enters our mess, sacrifices himself for us, absorbing all the wrath, absorbing all the judgment, and giving us forgiveness. How much more should we be celebrating Christ? The book of Hebrews is a celebration of the life of Jesus Christ. Uh, it, it celebrates His goodness and His grace, uh, His greatness. The writer is helping you and I to, to put our trust in Him, even though that there are many pressures going on in life, pressures outside of ourselves, pressures inside of ourselves, the writer wants us trusting Jesus and he wants you and I convinced that Jesus is worth celebrating. We're not going to read the whole book, you can do that later on today when you get home, but you'll see that the writer describes Jesus as the Son of God. He describes all the work that he's done and how he's fulfilled everything that God has spoken about in the Old Testament. God has perfected them all in Christ, in his life and in his death. And what the writer is basically saying is that his life, Christ, his death, that's the key to life. When you understand the significance of Christ, you realize you've got the key to life. And when you receive the key to life, to God's kingdom, you celebrate. Look at the last two verses of chapter 12. I know we're looking at 13, but 13 follows on from, from these two important verses. Therefore, since we are receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, let us be thankful and so worship God acceptably with reverence and awe. For our God is the consuming fire. If the gospel makes sense to you, it makes sense that you celebrate it. It's the least we can do, isn't it? 
to be thankful. In fact, it's all we can really do, isn't it? Celebrate Christ. So the writer of Hebrews helps us. He helps us to not give up in doing that. And that's what chapter 13 is, is, is about. We're reminded of ways of how our thankfulness in Christ, how it overflows in the community, in the life of the church. So chapter 13, there's, there's heaps of instructions and there's some wonderful promises. What I'm going to do is, is, is think through these things in, in three ways. Uh, three ways in which our thankfulness for Christ uh, overflows in our life. First of all, if we are thankful for Jesus, we won't give up on each other. Thankful Christians don't give up on each other. Instead, we, we persist, don't we? We persist in loving each other. Look at how the writer describes who the others are. Verse 1, there are those who are within. So we don't give up on those within God's family. If you read the letters of the New Testament, the, the family of God takes priority over the human family. The human family is a subset of the family of God. And our job is to demonstrate to the, to the world that we are part of God's family. That's why, if like the world, we give absolute priority to, to our human family and not the family of God, we're just reinforcing really what the world thinks, aren't we? But we are in a family of God. And that's why we've got to somehow demonstrate that the family of God is, is precious. And our little families are subsets of the great family of God. So there are those who are within. Verse 2, there are those we also don't know. So we don't give up on the stranger. When a stranger comes in, steps into our gatherings maybe, into our houses, our love goes over to them too, doesn't it? Not just with those that you get along with or who smell nice or look good. Anyone. As a writer reminds us, you never know who it is you might be serving. So there are those within, there are those we don't know. In verse 3, there are those who are restrained. We don't give up on those who can't come in. So, our love thinks about how we can reach these kinds of people. So for Christians back then, loads of them would have, would have been in prison. For us, uh, it might be those we know who are housebound or hospital-bound. People who perhaps have no car, no access to, to get out. People who have no family. Our love must go out to them. Go to those who are shut in. We need to think, don't we, how we can reach them and how we can care for them. That's what the church does, isn't it? God has made you new. He has given you a, a new life, a new love. And so when somebody new comes in, we try to love them. And when somebody can't come in, we try to love them. So maybe you guys might be trying to do that by getting people into your homes after church services or during the week, trying to love them and doing that often. 
You're being sensitive perhaps of the stranger, those who are walking in, in here, those who live next door to you, or those perhaps who are stuck somewhere out in the, the outer suburbs of where you live. Have you considered that? That there might be others around you who've actually imprisoned themselves in their houses. There's not many elderly people amongst you here. Have you considered uh, going to nursing homes? People who are stuck there. The elderly nursing homes, not just for old churches, are they? Not just for older members. They're for you and I to love and to go out to. So how do you show the world just how precious and significant and different the family of God is? So thankful Christians don't give up on each other. Keep it going, all the hospitality. Uh, Keep it going, all the the looking out for each other and and picking each other up and, and bringing others along with you and ringing them up. Two phones, just one phone. Sharing together how God's working in your community. Let's push on. Verse 4 and 5. The writer mentions things uh, for us to avoid. He's honing on, on, on really two classic dangers for us. Unfaithfulness and greed. Give up on the unfaithfulness. Give up on the greed. These are really two great killers of family, aren't they? Both the human family and the family of God. Verse 4. Unfaithfulness. What does the writer say? God will judge you. So if you, can, if you think you can be a Christian... And be unfaithful, persist in unfaithfulness, immorality. Be warned. God will judge you. So, you either take your unfaithfulness, you take it to Jesus, and ask him to forgive you and to transform you and to help you, or you keep it to yourself. And he will judge you. But realize you won't get away with it. So, give up the unfaithfulness. Verse 5, about greed. Here we get an Old Testament appeal. God won't leave you. God won't forsake you. So let's not be deluded. Let's not be deluded that uh, your money, even if you could get more and more and more of it, it won't make you any more strong or secure. As if your money could, could be your refuge and your strength. Your money will fail you. And if your money is the thing which consumes you, not only will it destroy you, but it will destroy the relationships you have, won't it? God is your refuge and your strength. He will never leave or forsake you. So as Christians, we've got to demonstrate that, don't we? That our refuge and our strength is God. Not our success and our money. So give up the greed. Unfaithfulness and greed destroy us, don't they? Unfaithfulness and greed goes against everything who God is and what He does and what He wants of us. So for us as Christians, to persist in these things is to go against everything we say we believe in. Instead, verse 6, Can you say with confidence, the Lord is my helper? We've got the help. 
God has helped us, hasn't he? By sending us his son, Jesus. He loves us despite our unfaithfulness, despite our greed. And that's what we celebrate, isn't it? God's grace. And that's the key. As we increasingly celebrate the love of God and as we grow in our thankfulness of our helper, Christ, that's what will grow and increase our love for each other. And that's what's going to demonstrate to the world, isn't it? That our refuge is God. So thankful Christians don't give up on each other. Another way Christ helps us in our love for each other is by giving us leaders. Verse 7, leaders are examples for us. Good leaders, they are helpers and they help us grow in our love for each other, but they help us grow in our thankfulness in Christ. So if we're thankful, we don't just give up on each other, but we also don't give up on our leaders. So that's the second thing. Thankful Christians don't give up on their leaders. Now notice what the writer says here. Verse 7, remember your leaders, good leaders who who speak God's word to you. Verse 8, Jesus is the same yesterday, today and forever. Verse 9, avoid bad leaders. Verse 8 is right between remembering your leaders and avoiding bad leaders. Verse 8 is reminding us, Jesus is the same yesterday, today and forever. Here's the point. We're to value Bible leaders and if they fail us, if they disappear, which they will, Jesus is the same yesterday, today, forever. So He is your sufficiency. Don't turn away to a leader who will stop telling you that Jesus is the same today, yesterday, forever. Because this happens, doesn't it? And this happens, and churches can, can quickly go haywire. You look back one decade and there is a faithful, fruitful church, and one decade later, it's confusing, it's dangerous and perhaps toxic. There are churches in the New Testament which go from being great to terrible in just a few years. And there are churches today, aren't there? They go from being fruitful to fruitless very quickly. So verse 9, avoid bad leaders. Good leaders remind you of God's grace. Avoid bad leaders. We don't need ceremonial foods. We don't need someone who is telling us ritual. We need someone who's telling us about the grace of God. Isn't that refreshing? I mean, we often look to leaders to do what? To create the programs, to create the events. We need marriage courses, parent groups, kids clubs, craft clubs. And we need leaders for all these programs, don't we? But the thing is, when you peel all those activities away, the leaders, are they telling you about the grace of God? Because that's what we need, isn't it? Verse 10. We have an altar. You might go to some church gatherings and and there's an altar. There's altar calls. 
I hope no one thinks that, that we have an altar here. In our building in Cobden, uh, we don't have a very flashy building. But over to the side, there's a table and has an old plate and, and cup on there. Um, it's not an altar. It's a table. Now, as a church, we're a small church, but we can't all fit around this table. But sometimes I stand behind it and I use it where I'll break the bread and, and, and have it passed out. I'll pour some juice or some wine and, and pass it out. And as we do that, we remember the altar. You see, the altar that we remember is the last and final altar. It was an altar that was set up 2,000 years ago outside of Jerusalem. It was an altar of a wooden cross and on it was a human sacrifice who was the Son of God, Jesus. And when Jesus cried out, it is finished, the sacrifice was done. The final altar was finished. We don't need another altar. We are people today who can now look back at the cross and we can say, that's the altar where my sins were carried away. That's the altar. Uh, it's the door through which we enter into God's family. That's where my security in heaven is found. That is my hope, both now and for the future. We have an altar, the writer says. Verse 11, the writer goes on to say two things about sacrifices. The first he says, don't be ashamed to identify with the one called Jesus who was sacrificed. You see, people in the world are easily impressed by, what, successful things. And so it's easy for us, isn't it, to talk about successful things with each other, with others. But the watching world is not that impressed with the church. Our successes are no match with the successes of the world. We must realise, however, when Jesus died, what did he do? He turned all real, true values the right way up again. And so we need to stop being ashamed of the disgrace of Jesus who when he died on the cross, he actually put everything right. He paid for sin. He opened the door. And so we need to try our best, don't we? To say to people, you know what, I could tell you all about my feeble successes. But you know what, I've actually pinned my hope on somebody who was publicly disgraced. He's opened up all the success that matters. It's how we've got to think, isn't it? And more than think, this is how we've got to communicate and talk to each other. That's what the writer says here to us. Don't be ashamed to identify with the sacrifice of Jesus. The other thing he says about sacrifice, he says in verse 15, you can offer sacrifices, but look what they are. They are sacrifices of praise. Sacrifices of gratitude and appreciation. And look, this is a whole heap more than just singing a few songs uh, for an hour in a gathering like this once a week, isn't it? 
Our praises are much more than that. Our praises have got to be the continual thanksgiving, the, the continual appreciation for a good and faithful God, hour by hour, giving us more than what we probably can, can even grasp. Our sacrifice is nothing less than the celebration of Jesus and His sacrifice for us. You see, that kind of thanksgiving, it spills over. It spills over in how we help other people. Verse 16, I've received so much, let me pass things on to you. I've received something so huge, so gigantic, that I just have to share it with you. Another spillover is, is how you help your leaders. Verse 7, we looked at it before, don't just remember your leaders, you know, those who tell you about the grace of God. Verse 17, we obey them too, we help them. The word obey, uh, literally, it means be persuaded. And we're not persuaded just because some guy has a theological degree or some ministerial title. We're persuaded by the word that our leaders teach. We're persuaded by the grace of God. Submit. Also, literally, it means yield, uh, surrender, which again means uh, must be we, we yield, we surrender to the word. So when the Word comes to you, realize you're doing business with the Word. Not just some man, the guy with authority to say things. No, no, no. The Word spoken by such men, they speak a Word that has authority because the authority is the Word. So back then, people had... The people used to go to priests. Uh, and now they're being told by the writer here to go and listen to their preacher. The priest, he is a holy man. You, you, you go to him and he does holy things for you and then you go. A preacher, however, he confronts you with the word of God. It may be a word that comforts you or it may be a word that challenges you. So if you're, in, if you're in bed in a hospital and a priest comes to see you, he might do holy things, you know, sprinkle something or allow you to kiss some kind of shiny object. He might give you communion. He might offer you forgiveness. However, if a preacher comes in, he might challenge you with the Word of God. He might comfort you. He might challenge you. It's always interesting, an interesting thing to work out what you're going to do with a preacher. Phil, he is your pastor, your preacher. His job is to bring the word to you, isn't it? You don't dismiss the word the man says, that Phil says, because he speaks the word. Of course, you need to be wise and discerning in how you get persuaded how you surrender yourselves to the Word. And of course, this goes for our leaders too, doesn't it? They have to be careful how they get persuaded and how they yield because they will be held to account by God. So leaders, we're told, are to keep watch. 
Again, literally, that means chase sleep. It's a bit strange, isn't it? Chase sleep. Why do pastors, preachers chase sleep? Well, because good pastors, they care deeply for people to the point of sleepless care. Have you ever thought about it? That it's actually quite possible for your pastor to lay up at night and be thinking things like, who's going to be looking after that single mother now? Who's going to help that bereaved person to cope? What's happened to that person who's who's disappeared? They've drifted away. Why is that particular person uh, going so badly in 2019, unlike last year? How am I going to get this person who who loves material things so much, how am I going to get them interested into spiritual things? What can we do for that man who is now without job, without work, six months now? Who's supporting that family who has about a hundred battles going on every single day? Why is that particular person so down at the moment, so low? Why is that person so proud? Just because I'm pointing, I'm not referring to anyone, by the way. (laughs) What can we do for people who love their work more than they love Jesus? Do you see it's quite possible to see these kind of people, your preacher, your elders, lying in bed, chasing sleep? And it's these very thoughts... It's these concerns that your elders, that your leaders, that Phil might have, that he will have to give an account to. What did he do with those thoughts? What didn't he do with those thoughts? And so look again, look at verse 17. I think it makes absolute good sense why the writer would say to us there, make their work a joy. Don't make their work a burden. Make it a joy. This is God's word, isn't it? It's not my words. God's telling us. God's telling you. Make Phil a happy pastor. That's your job. And that's what you'll be held to account for. So now you're seeing why Phil had uh, forced me to preach on this passage. (laughs) No, no, no. I chose to. And I'm glad. It's it's easier for me to preach these kind of passages because it's awkward for Phil to have to try to apply verses like this to you guys. So I'm going to challenge you now. It's exciting. How can you go out of your way to make Phil a happy pastor? How can you go that extra mile to make your elders happy elders. How can you do this? Well, to be honest, I haven't got any great insights of wisdom. It's all there, isn't it? Verse 18. Pray. Your pastor, he's a feeble man. Pray for him. Your pastor, he may be a frustrating man at times. Your elders, pray for him. Your pastor may be confusing at times. Pray for him. Your pastor, your elders may be without sleep. 
They might be down. Pray for them. They might be facing temptations you're unaware of. They might be proud. Pray for them. Maybe your elders, maybe Phil is actually doing really well, doing really fine, being fruitful and faithful in their ministry. Pray for them. Thank God for them. Your job is to work on their joy. Pray for them. And don't just pray for them in your closets. Talk to them about them. Tell them what you're thankful to God about. Tell them what, what you're praying for them about. And don't just pray for them, pray with them. It's not just the pastor or the elder's job to do all the praying over people in the church, is it? Pray with them. Work on their joy. So what have we said? We've said thankful Christians don't give up on each other. And we've said, secondly, they don't give up on their leaders. Why? Because last of all, thankful Christians don't give up on God. If we're thankful for Jesus, we won't give up on God. This is my last point, but it's also a conclusion. Look at verse 20 and 21. This is the conclusion to the whole letter. Now may the God of peace, who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, may he equip you with everything good, that you may do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight, through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. In short, what is the writer saying? May God work in us what pleases him. And he will do it, won't he? Verse 21, he will do it for his glory. And he'll do it, verse 25, by his grace. The whole of Christian life is summed up, isn't it? Grace to glory. Now look, I've said heaps, I, I, I acknowledge that. Chapter 13 says a lot. How are we going to remember it all? You see, maybe you go home thinking, yeah, this was all really interesting, but impossible to remember. Maybe you, you even with a clamoured brain, you'll go home and you'll try your best. But let me end by just saying, don't worry about it. Don't worry about it. Don't panic about the details. You don't need to remember the details. Because this chapter is about what God does. And it's what, about he, it's what he does through his people by the gospel. Once the gospel has, has got into you, the new life is flowing through you. What we've seen here in this section in chapter 13 is the fruit of that new life. And God works it. When you walk with Jesus, the details of chapter 13 will just flow. So go and celebrate God's grace given to you in Jesus. Go and be thankful and never give up on those who find their joy and their life in Jesus. Never give up on those who are striving to lead you to Christ and to a greater thankfulness and joy in Him. Never give up on God. Never stop celebrating His grace and His glory. Do everything you possibly can to celebrate Jesus. 
makes sense, doesn't it? Your thankfulness to God for Jesus is the least we can do. It's the only appropriate way to respond to knowing God and His grace, to knowing God and His glory. We have so much to be thankful for about Jesus, don't we? And I hope that that would show more and more in the life of this church here in Armstrong Creek. And I hope that it would show more and more in the life of churches throughout our nation in Australia. Let's pray. Our good and gracious Father, we thank you again this morning for giving your Son. We thank you for his death on the cross so that we might have new life by faith in him. And we pray that you would help us to live this new life today as we head back to our houses, as we try and interact with our family and our friends, as we head off to work in the week ahead, as we mix with neighbours, as we interact with new people, as we make decisions and as we enjoy your creation. We pray that you would so wonderfully work through us by your grace and for your glory, that we would be a thankful and joyful people. And Father, we pray for Phil. Help him always to be a man of the word. May he always find his rest there in your word. And may he increase in in persuading this church here, in confronting them with your living and powerful word. Father, we pray that you would help this church make Phil's job a massive joy. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.